This is the Irrelevant Information Podcast, a podcast about unimportant subjects. I'm Rodrigo Nunez, and today we're going to talk about the Great Stink of 1858. The River Thames is the second longest river in the UK at 215 miles long. It's located in the south of England and famously cuts through London flowing out onto the North Sea. The Thames is the reason why London exists. Julius Caesar referenced the Thames in his account of his second expedition to Britain, and the earliest Roman settlements were along the river itself. In 43 AD, under Emperor Claudius's reign, the Romans occupied England and built fortifications along the Thames and created the settlement of Londinium. And since then, for the most part, there's been a settlement along this river up until the modern day. Londinium is the long lost ancestor of London. It's hugely important for British people, the River Thames, and for the history of London. It's literally what made London possible, and thus the British Empire possible. A former British MP, John Elliot Burns, referred to the river as, quote, liquid history, end quote, which I assume sounds even more dramatic in a British accent. Yet for centuries, starting in the 1600s well into the 1800s, the people of London also treated this river as a dump for their trash and their fecal waste. Everything from sewage to slaughterhouse waste to fish market waste all flowed into the Thames. Eventually, factories alongside the river also dumped out ammonia, spent lime, carbolic acid, and the Thames became more of a poop channel than a majestic ancient river. All of this came to a head in one of the hottest summers on record in 1858, in an event called the Great Stink. In the 1600s, London was already a large metropolitan center. As such, they implemented a system of brick sewers, and even parts of smaller rivers were entirely covered so they could serve as sewer channels. In the 1800s, however, the city population exploded from 1 million people to 3 million people, and the water and sewage system struggled to service that many people. At this point in London's history, a lot of the water pipes and sewage pipes were still medieval-era wooden pipes that were being replaced with iron pipes, but it was very slow. On the residential side, the biggest change that required a more robust sewage system was the introduction of the flushing toilet, just like the toilets we have now. Flushing toilets introduced way more water into the sewage systems than before. Tied to the population growth and perhaps largely responsible for the growth was also a large increase of factories in London at this time. Many of these factories were built along the banks of the Thames with the intention of using the river as an outfall or as a dump for all of the waste to just flow out into the river. All of these factors, an exploding population, an aging sewage system, flushing toilets, factories, and a massive river flowing through the middle of town, Combine all of these together and what you get is a nasty trash flow instead of a river. The Thames was a literal cesspit. It smelled awful and people would describe dense clouds of stink that were visible in the sky around it. The government, however, instead of having sweeping reforms, chose to go the air freshener route and would pour chalk lime, chlorine of lime onto the river to ease the smell. But that's it. That's all they would do. The river was notoriously bad. 
I want to take a second to highlight some of the visual satirical representations of the river that popped up in magazines and newspapers at this time, because it really kind of paints a picture of how people saw the river. The most prevailing was that of a character by the name of Father Thames, which is a representation of the river as an old man. Now, there was two big representations. It can either be like a fat, ogre-like person or a really thin, long-bearded man. But in both cases, he's dirty and creepy-looking. He's carrying something that looks like sludge that kind of looks like dead plants or having garbage hanging off of him. And he's got this sullen face on him or this creepy face on him that just looks like a like a poor wretched old man and standing in the middle of the river and always the people seen interacting with father Thames have a repulsed look or are literally covering their noses and this was all around newspapers and satirical magazines at the time it's interesting to me that the river is represented as an old man because if you've ever seen the movie spirited away which is a studio ghibli classic it's won an oscar it's won a pretty much every award, you would know that rivers there are represented as dragons. And they also dealt with polluted rivers. They also represented polluted rivers in that movie. Um, when a polluted river would show up, instead of being this majestic dragon, it would be like a dirty, monstrous, sludge-covered thing, which kind of reminds me of the depictions of Father Tam. So it's kind of interesting that this depiction of a polluted river in the 1800s would ring so closely to the depiction of a polluted river in a movie in the 2000s from Japan. I, I just thought that was interesting. But a big reason why people were covering their noses in the pictures of, of Father Tams, and they'll be in the show notes so you can take a look, a big reason is not just because of the disgusting smell, but because the prevailing theory at the time is that smell was the way that diseases spread. People at the time believed that stink would literally kill you. Specifically, they believed that cholera was transmitted through smell. The theory is called miasma theory, and it's that theory of the belief that smell carries cholera or carries diseases, that if you smell it, you're literally bringing the illness into your body. Um, that was the prevailing theory at the time. Now, the stink of the Thames was notorious since the early 1800s, yet the government really did nothing other than throw some air freshener or literally bath bomb the poop in the river to, quote, prevent disease. But nothing serious was actually done, which is kind of messed up. Because if you believe this theory, which many people at the time did, especially people in the government, the government was essentially just letting people die. Instead of handling the smell, they were just kind of like, ah, we'll just throw some soap in there every now and then and it'll be fine. All of this changed, however, in the hot summer of 1858. In June 1858, the temperatures in the shade in London averaged between 93 and 97 degrees Fahrenheit. And in the sun, the temperatures raised to 118 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I'm from Texas, and I can even tell you that 118 is hot even for here. So I can't imagine how hot it would be in London where they're used to more cold temperature. And with all the humidity there, it must have been unbearable. Now, pair that with a drought at the same time that it was incredibly hot and the levels of the river dropped and what was left behind was all the trash and gunk and slime and poop and just nastiness. In parts of the river, there was six feet of crap 
and people would get nauseated just by smelling the river. And this smell permeated all through London. The Queen, in fact, famously tried to take a pleasure cruise on the river, but couldn't bear it for more than a few minutes. And the press started calling this phenomenon of the June of 1858 the Great Stink. That's how bad it was. And nothing would have changed just like normal, except for the fact that the smell was so bad that it infiltrated the halls of the House of Commons in Parliament, which was just recently remodeled in 1852, and the politicians were unable to withstand it. They went so far as to soak the curtains in lime chloride that faced the river, and they thought this would prevent the stench from coming in, but nothing really worked. Still, at first, they proposed moving Parliament to a building away from the river instead of addressing the issue of the stink of the river, but since it was just remodeled, they decided against it. Still, at the very beginning, the House of Commons and the House of Lords were all passing the blame back and forth, saying, does, the, does Her Majesty believe that, uh, does Her Majesty's government have anything to do with this? And they would say, no, it has nothing to do with it, or any, like, they were just passing the blame back and forth. Finally, on the 15th of June, the leader of the House of Commons, a man by the name of Benjamin Disraeli, tabled the Metropolis Local Management Amendment Bill. And this was a proposed amendment to the 1855 Act that would enable this organization to clear up the Thames, right? And it put the responsibility to clear up the Thames on the MBW, also known as the Metropolitan Board of Works. And it stated that as far as may be possible, the sewerage outlets should not be within the boundaries of London. It also allowed the board to borrow up to three million pounds, which was to be repaid from a three penny levy on all London households for the next 40 years. So this is kind of amazing to me that the cost to fix, to clear up the river was calculated at three pennies for 40 years from every house in London. Now, I think that's a really good deal, especially if you think at that time, which so many people did, that smell would literally kill you. And I'm surprised that it took that long. And all it took for the government to do something about the growing problem of an inadequate sewer system and the ruining of a great river was for the entirety of London to smell like a porta potty in the desert. So let that be a lesson in how you can get government to move. Now, the savior and executor of the plan to rescue London from overflowing and crap was a man by the name of Joseph Bazalget, a civil engineer in charge of the Metropolitan Board of Works, or MBW. Joseph Bazalget was actually promoted to chief of the MBW after his predecessor literally died from stress in 1852. That kind of shows you how much stress went into handling the sewers of London at the time, so this was not an easy task. Anyway, what Basil Getz's plan was as follows. There would be three types or three categories of sewage pipes. Small local sewers that were three feet in diameter that would feed into a series of larger sewers until they drained into the main outflow pipes 11 feet high. Now, a northern and a southern outfall sewer were planned to manage the waste for each side of the river. And London was mapped into high, middle, and low-level areas with the main sewers servicing each. A series of pumping stations was planned to remove the waste towards the east of the city. 
And the plan also accounted for a population of 4.5 million people, which is 1.5 more than the population of London at the time of the formation of the plan. Bessalget's plans for the 1,100 miles of additional street sewers, which would collect both effluent and rainwater, would feed into 82 miles of main interconnecting sewers, and this was put out between 1859 and 1865. Now, Gets sewage system worked, and not only did the smell go away, but so did the deaths from cholera. Remember, at this time, miasma theory was prevalent, so preventing people from smelling the nastiness would prevent disease, according to the belief at the time. The fact that Parliament could smell the stench is a big part as to why this project got funded. But what was actually happening was that by creating a competent sewage system, the City of London was separating its sewage and waste from its drinking water. And that's what was preventing disease. The man most influential in ending or combating miasma theory was a man by the name of Jon Snow. This Jon Snow did know stuff. <laughs> and during the cholera epidemic of 1854, Jon Snow traced high death rates to a water pump in Broad Street. He convinced the local government to remove the pump handle from that pump. And when they did that, the cases of cholera decreased a considerable amount. Snow then used statistical data to show that citizens who received their water from upstream sources were considerably less likely to develop cholera than those who received their water from downstream sources. He reported this research to the government, and review committees concluded that his findings were not significant enough. Now, this, is, this reminds me of something that happened one time playing the video game cities skylines which is kind of like a sim city clone it's actually really good and it's frequently on sale my wife and i were playing this a while ago and my wife one time started panicking because she's like my citizens are all dying when i rushed over to see what was happening i could see that all of her citizens were dying of poisoning or like a skull and crossbones were showing up and she was losing people fast and when i saw her water system i saw that she was collecting drinking water downstream of the sewage output. So this was something that Jon Snow discovered in 1854, and the authorities were like, nah, that doesn't really matter. So it's just kind of interesting that we ran into that in 2017 or whenever we were playing. But anyway, despite his studies and reports, many water companies and civic authorities pumped water directly from contaminated sources, such as the River Thames, to public wells. And the idea of changing sources or implementing filtration techniques was not attractive economically speaking. So because of that, reform was not adopted. Again, who cares, right? Government spending is hardly ever done on useful things for the poor. Now, after the sewage system that Bazalget designed was implemented, there was one cholera outbreak. But that occurred in a part of London that was not connected to the new sewage system, which would go on to further prove his theory. Jon Snow did not live to see his theory adopted, which is the germ theory or the dismissal of the miasma theory, but he was ultimately right. If his theory would have been adopted earlier, perhaps more lives could have been saved and the great stink would have never happened and this episode would have never existed. But still, I think I'd rather have less people dying from poop water than a podcast episode. Now, to me, the great stink is an illustration 
of just how bad things have to get before real change comes and exactly who it has to affect. So it's a theory, it's a story to me that kind of really shows the fault in government sometimes. While the poor were affected, no one cared. But once the lawmakers couldn't work and were at risk of death, according to their theory at the time, then change was quick to pass. I wonder... Thinking about the story, what will be the great stink of climate change? And I sincerely hope it doesn't come to that. The second thing that I get from the great stink is that good things can be done for the wrong reason. The sewers were built and London saved the river and created a system that is still active to this day, all because of a misguided belief in something as foolish as cholera is spread by smell. Yet, it's that belief that led to this great work. Now, I'm sure Jon Snow, the one that knew, didn't mind that there was finally a change being done in the name of something that was wrong as long as change was being done, period. And so many times I think that's what matters overall. And that can be the benefit of incorrect theories as long as they lead to the benefit. But most of all, I'm really afraid of what the great stink of climate change will be. And I hope it doesn't come to pass and I'm just being dramatic. But... Otherwise, we're going to have to go give a lot of poop smell to the folks in Congress or in the UN or somewhere to get attention, right? That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I tried to come up with a lot of different ways to say poop river, but there's only so many ways and poop is really fun to say, so... I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to share this episode with your friends. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store or on Stitcher. That really helps people kind of find the podcast. See you next time. And as always, OR4 did nothing wrong. This is the Irrelevant Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.